Uh, I have been sharing glimpses of my faith with my stylist. Now, she's quite a character. Her name is Mercedes. And uh, when I went to see her and said, hey, I need to get my hair cut. It's, it's, you know, Easter Sunday's coming. She said, I've got a good plan for you, Pastor. She said, I want to shave an Easter egg into the back of your head <laughs> and give you pink highlights. Uh, I said, yeah, about that. Not going to happen. And uh, uh, as I said, she got a lot of personality. And you may be wondering, why would you trust her? Uh, uh, I like a challenge. And she does too. So uh, we always have a lively little, little session. Uh, as I was kind of telling her a little bit about the Easter story, you know, and just trying to share my faith a little bit without being too aggressive, you know, she, she started asking me some questions. And one of the questions she asked me, is, she said, Pastor... You know, I'm terrified of speaking in front of people. I'm the person who would go to the teacher and say, can I give my oral report after class just to you? And she said, and my teachers would accommodate me. And I said, and that's why you're still terrified to speak in front of people, because they accommodated you. And anyway, so we had a nice back and forth. And then uh, she asked me, she said, do you ever get nervous speaking in, in front of large gatherings? And I thought about it for a minute, and I said, no, Mercedes, I don't get nervous speaking in front of groups, especially if I know my lines. If I know what I'm going to say, I'm good. Now, I'm like everybody else. If I'm not prepared and I don't know what I'm going to say, of course, anybody's nervous in that context. But if you know your lines, if you know your message, if you know that, then that's what you know, helps you have confidence to stand and speak. I had opportunities this past week, not only to share my faith with her, but share it with my, my chiropractor as well. And it was interesting exchanges with, with both of those personalities. And as I was talking to them, I was reminded, just as I hear them talking and me talking, I'm reminded that Christianity has its own language. In other words, if you're a believer, you, you have different phrasing and different words and vocabulary that you know that you use when you're talking to people, that people who don't know the Lord, they don't have that vocabulary and you can hear it and it, 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 it helps clue you uh, to the condition of the person you're, you're talking to. Our language as Christians, the reason we have this unique language is our language has been affected has been influenced by the biblical story itself. But also, as I hear Christians talking about the biblical story, I'm also challenged as to whether we believers have got the story right. In other words, when I hear Christians talking about what Christianity is about, sometimes I, I, I raise an eyebrow and I'm like, wait, is that really the story? Because the Bible is telling one story very clearly... But I often hear Christians telling an alternate story, an, an alternative. They, the story is similar, but it's been changed a little bit, and they've made an alternative gospel, an alternate story. <clears throat> now, you have part in the story. You're part of the story. When we talk about Christianity and salvation and sins forgiven and, and a living Savior, that's not their story. That's your story. You have lines in the story. You've been written into the great drama of salvation. You've been 
scripted in to the family of God and therefore scripted in to the biblical story about the crucifixion and the subsequent resurrection. So I guess my question to you this morning is the one that maybe Mercedes put to me. Do you know your lines? Do you know what your speaking part is in the story of Christianity? Now, many of you are celebrating your first Easter as a believer. I think that's really cool. So, for those of you who are celebrating your first Easter as a believer, congratulations. Welcome to the family. Uh, We're glad to welcome you to your first Easter celebration. Uh, Many of you here this morning are celebrating your first Easter service as a covenant member of Cornerstone. Hey, welcome. Congratulations. We are glad that you are part of this community of believers. Uh, all over the world, uh, you, you'll see this play out on Facebook, and my Facebook has all these, you know, Indians and Nepalis and Burmese and, and, and uh, people from all over the world. And so I, you pull up your Facebook feed this morning, and you'll see all over the world this morning, uh, uh, pastors and congregations are telling the story of the risen Christ. And... What I want you to lock down is the whole Christian family is talking today. And they're telling one story. And it's not just the pastors that have speaking parts. Now, in America, our Christian traditions, I don't know, they're just not the same. And I think some of the European Christian traditions and the other Christian traditions, we need to revive, quite honestly. About covenants and creeds and your speaking parts because it helps us be centered and rooted in our faith. For example, if you talk about Easter in Europe or or India or Asia today, everybody all over the world are saying the exact same things. For example, if you were in a foreign country this morning and you went to church and someone said to you, Christ is risen. Your speaking part as a believer is to say, He is risen indeed. Now, Americans aren't too into this. But everywhere else in the world this morning, that Christ is being celebrated in the resurrection, Christians and pastors are greeting each other at the front door with these words, Christ is risen. And that's what the reply is from the people coming into the house of God this morning. Now, what I would challenge you is, let's reinvigorate the Christian traditions that have been lost in America. Let's learn to greet each other that the way other Christians all over the world are greeting each other on this day. Christ is risen. Now, if someone were to ask you, what do you know about the tomb? Your speaking part is... Letty, what do you know about the tomb? Yes, it is. Has anybody been to the empty tomb? Yeah, what do you know about it? It's empty. You say, what did you see? Absolutely nothing. (laughs) Exactly, that's the whole point. (laughs) What's the evidence that Christ is risen? There's nothing there. Uh, uh, It's empty. If someone says to you, hey... uh, what, what, do you, what, what do you know? What do you, what do you think about that tomb they're talking about? Here, your reply is, it's empty. That's what I know about the tomb. Listen, if someone were to ask you, well, then what about Jesus? 
Your response on Easter is this. He's alive. Well, what about Jesus? He's alive. That's what about Jesus. He's not a myth. He's not a legend. He's not a folktale. He is a living Savior who's very much alive this morning. Easter is so special to us because the resurrection narratives are what the whole story of the Bible has been building toward. Man, when you start reading through the Old Testament leading into the New, this is what we've been waiting for. We've been waiting for the hero to show up. And the hero's not the judges, and the hero's not King David. The, he, the hero is uh, uh, not Gideon and Jephthah and Samson. The, the hero is, is not Abraham or Moses or Joshua or Caleb. The hero's going to show up here in the New Testament. And the biblical narratives have been building towards this. The Old Testament promised that God would send a hero who would fix this broken world. But we encounter a seismic plot twist. A monumentous plot twist in the New Testament. Because the one that's being built up and you just you, you know he's the hero. This guy is the hero. He's about to do the hero thing. Here comes the hero. And then this seismic plot twist. The hero is arrested, crucified, and buried. And you're like, wait, he's the hero. <laughs> this is what the whole Bible's been building towards. What all of history's been looking for. Now what? And the now what chapters in the Bible are those chapters that have revolutionized and changed this whole world. Those resurrection chapters. Because the story doesn't end for Jesus at the grave. As a matter of fact, the cross was a very common thing. There were lots of crosses and lots of crucifixions. The Romans didn't just crucify Jesus. They crucified tens of thousands of people. Going out of Rome, there's a cross about every 30 yards with a rebel on that cross after the Slave revolt of Spartacus. Every 30 yards, there's a person hanging on a cross. No, the Romans had lots of crosses and killed lots of people. Well, what makes Jesus' cross so special? As a matter of fact, even today if I said the cross or the crucifixion, nobody's thinking Spartacus. They're all thinking Jesus Christ. Well, what makes the cross have the meaning that it has is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The cross means what it means because of the resurrection. The resurrection of our hero in the story has changed everything for us. And since we've been in the book of Hebrews, I want to go back to the book of Hebrews this morning. And I want to go to chapter number 1. And I want to show you that the writer of Hebrews picks up this story after the resurrection. Let me read. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. In other words, the Old Testament's full of how God talked to people through different prophets and kings and this and that. Verse 2, but in these last days, God has spoken to us how? By His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also He made the universe. Now listen very carefully to how Jesus is about to be described. Verse 3, the Son is the radiance of of God's glory, the exact representation of His being. Jesus is the exact representation of God. 
sustaining all things by His powerful Word. Now, in the ancient times, uh, obviously they did not have iPhones and internets and computers and cameras and social media and all the ways today that you would share images or you would, you know, if I said, hey, uh, you know, hey, hey, Sean, send me that picture from when we were in Israel. He just airdrop it right over to me. Boom, I've got it just like that. Magic comes right through the air. Uh, they didn't have any of this kind of stuff. And so it was very hard to share images. It was very hard to express someone's character to people in faraway places. And suppose an emperor wanted to share to his vast kingdom what his character was. Suppose he wanted to share what, who he was, what he looked like, and what kind of a, a person he was to his people. What they would do is they would commission an artist. And the artist would make a drawing, and then the artist would take that drawing and carve it into a, a, a metal stamp or a metal die made of a very, very hard metal. And uh, then they would take a, a coin made of softer metal, and they would take that stamp or that die, and they would take a hammer, and they would strike the die with a hammer, and it would push down into the soft metal of that coin, and the coin would have an exact representation of the die. So if the die had a correct picture of the emperor, once you started striking the coins or the softer material, you have exact representations of the emperor, of a Caesar, of a, of a king. That's the exact language the writer of Hebrews is using to describe what God has done through Jesus Christ. The exact language. For a long time, God had sent some advanced sketches of what God was like. But none of those sketches did justice, really, to who God really is and what God's character is really like. And, and none of those advanced sketches that God sent in the ancient days really portrayed Him as, he, as clearly as He wanted to be portrayed. So the author says, here's what God has done. God the Father's nature has been stamped upon human flesh. Do you know who Jesus is? He is the exact representation of Almighty God. He's the exact imprint of God. Let me read the rest of the verse. And after He had provided purification for sins, the cross, the resurrection, He sat down on the right hand of the Majesty in heaven. Jesus went to heaven and sat down on the throne. Now that raises a question to me. In what form did Jesus sit down on the throne of God? In what form? What is He like right now? As a resurrected Savior, He goes to heaven and He sits down on the throne in heaven. Well, what form is He in when He sits down on that throne? Now, the Bible's crystal clear on this. Bodily form. He has been bodily resurrected. Matter of fact, resurrection means nothing else. The very word means physical, bodily resurrection. There is no other definition for resurrection other than bodily resurrection. Which means when Jesus ascended to heaven and sat down on the throne, 
he is sitting down on a material throne in a material, physical body. Now, here's why this matters. Many have envisioned heaven as a faraway place, a place that is spiritual and not material. They have envisioned heaven as a spiritual place inhabited by spirits and by souls. Matter of fact, this is exactly what the Greek philosopher Plato, who's not a Christian, it's exactly what Plato taught his disciples. That's called Platonism. And that's what Plato taught his disciples, that material world was bad and you got all the physical body, that's the goal to go be spiritual and to fly away to live forever in heaven. Now, the early church, as you're reading through Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, the Corinthians, all of these books, the early church struggled greatly to keep Christianity separate from Platonism. There were, there's writings over and over where Paul is trying to tell the first Christian, listen, do not merge Plato back into the teachings of Jesus Christ. But alas, what has happened through the centuries is that the church is telling the story of Jesus in light of the teachings of Plato. The Bible is describing that Jesus, in his physical body, is raised to new life. And in that resurrected form, he enters into heaven and he takes his place on the throne from which he rules the universe. Now, this is the way the Hebrews writer started. He's going to end his sermon now. Twelve chapters later, he's starting to wrap it up. Twelve chapters later, he picks the theme right back up again. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. Now, the Hebrew writer is the, whoever this guy is who wrote the book of Hebrews or Gal is a genius. I mean, he's a literary uh, giant. And he has framed his sermon with bookends, which are Jesus Christ. He opens, God spoke to us through his son, and he went to the cross, whatever. He is the exact representation of God. And then over here, he picks the story up again with Jesus sitting on the throne, and he's told a whole story of faith in between here. A whole story about what it means to, to live by faith. And he's bookended his message with Jesus Christ. And the bookends hold the message together, and what the message is, is that Jesus is being identified as Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. Now, this is big news in the first century because they thought Yahweh, God, God's name in the Old Testament, that the Old Testament God was this and Jesus was this. And the Hebrews writer is saying, no, Jesus is the exact representation of God. He is the Old Testament Yahweh God. Je when you read about God in the Old Testament, that's who Jesus is. The king of heaven and earth has done something that has surprised everyone. God became man. 
God became man. And when he came to this earth, instead of conquering by force, he gave his life on the cross. And he was buried. And he rose again the third day. This is what God is doing. And by his resurrection, Jesus has broken the power of sin and death. This is the story the Bible is telling. Jesus has indeed conquered, but He did it through His death and His resurrection, not with a military army of might. That's what has blown the minds of the world. They thought, well, you're a king, incite a rebellion, stir up the people, and let's go storm the, 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 you know, the palace, and let's take control of this country. That's the way things work here on earth. But God did not take control in that way. Jesus died, and He was buried, and He rose again. And that's how He took control. Well, so that we can get our lines right, and get our story straight, I want to go very slowly. Some are, this is their first Easter, okay? So let's all be patient here together this morning. Let me walk real slowly now through the story step by step, okay? Why are we celebrating today? Let's get that right first. We are celebrating today because Jesus rose from the tomb. Well, good on that, right? Let me read a little. Matthew 28 is where the story is being told. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook, and they became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus, who was crucified. Here's some great news. He is not here. He is risen just as he said. I'm not here to lock you out of the tomb. I'm here to let you in the tomb. Come and see for yourselves. Come and see the place where he was. Verse 7. Then go quickly and tell the disciples he has risen from the dead and he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. Verse 8. So the women go, hurry away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy. And they ran to tell the disciples. And as they're going to tell the disciples, now suddenly Jesus met them. Resurrected Christ in a physical body. Not a ghost, not a spirit, not a soul. Resurrected, physical Jesus met them. Greetings. Hola, como estas? How are you? Good to see you. Hey, it's me. Greetings. And they came to Him. And they clasped his feet, they held on to him, and they worshipped. Can't do that with a ghost. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. What great words Jesus is always saying to us. Do not be afraid, it's all going to be okay. I'm in control. Let it play out. Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there... They will see me. Now, once they got over the shock that Christ was back from the dead, they saw him crucified a few days ago. He was definitely dead. They saw him put in the tomb. 
and now he's very much alive. Once they get over the shock, the celebration will start here in just a little bit. So let me walk you through the next step. Why was Jesus in the tomb? Well, because he was crucified. That's why he's in the tomb. Because he was crucified. Well, let me just read you that real quick. Matthew 27. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, and they led him away, and they handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Verse 11. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. You, you say so. That's the word on the street, all right. Yeah, that's what they're saying. That's what you're saying. I guess that's why I'm here being arrested. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Dude, aren't you going to speak up for yourself? Do you not hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor Pontius Pilate. Verse 22, what shall I do then, Pilate said, with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? They all answered, don't say these words. These are not your speaking words, okay? They all answered, crucify him. Pilate said, why? What crime has he committed? And they all said, Eve screamed at the top of their lungs, crucify him! Crucify him! Let me read on, verse number 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium. We'll be standing there about this time next year. And he gathered the whole company of the soldiers around him. And they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him. And they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Who wears a crown? Who has a staff in his right hand? And they knelt in front of him and they mocked him. They said, Hail, King of the Jews! Ha ha ha! And they spit on him. And they took the staff out of his hand and struck him on the head again and again and again. And they mocked him. And they took off the robe and they put his own clothes on him and they led him away. To be crucified. That's the story. My question to you now, let's keep moving. Why was Jesus crucified? Well, the answer to that question is clear in the Bible. Because of what he did leading up to Passover. That's why he was crucified. Listen, this is an interesting question. Why, why was Jesus crucified? Listen, if you ask a, a theologian this question, why was Jesus crucified? A theologian will answer something like this. Jesus died so our sins would be forgiven. We could be saved from sin and death and be reconciled into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's the answer a theologian would give. You ask an evangelical Christian, why did Jesus die on the cross? An evangelical Christian will likely answer something to this effect. Jesus died on the cross so we could have our sins forgiven and go to heaven when we die where we can live for eternity with Jesus in heaven. Which is not the Bible story, by the way. You ask a historian this question, you'll get a completely different answer. Ask a historian, why did Jesus die on the cross? A historian will tell you, well, I've read the records 
the true records. There, there are biblical and extra-biblical records. Here's why Jesus died on the cross, because of his actions and his speech leading up to Passover, which created conflict with the authorities. Therefore, they had him crucified, which is a correct answer. That is why Jesus was crucified. Well, I've got another question for you then. (laughs) What in the world did Jesus do leading up to Passover that will get you crucified? (laughs) What did Jesus do leading up to Passover? Well, the answer might surprise you. He engaged in a bit of street theater. Yeah, that's right. He engaged in a bit of street theater. A little drama played out on the streets of Jerusalem. Let me see if I can set the scene for you. Passover is the most momentous event in the history of the nation of Israel. It is the biggest event ever in the formation of of Israel. Like, Like... the Declaration of Independence and the Revolutionary War might be for you as Americans. Uh, Passover is the biggest event in the history of, of God's people, Israel. Passover, as I taught just a few weeks ago when we went through Moses, Passover is synonymous with the Exodus. The Exodus is the Exodus because Passover. When Passover happened, that was the beginning. Oh, that's what kicked off the Exodus. The Exodus happened, matter of fact, in the book of Exodus, (laughs) Passover is the key event in the whole book. So Passover is about liberation, it's about Independence Day, it's remembering, it's a national holiday that looks back and remembers that God delivered Israel uh, from her tyrant oppressor, which in those days was Pharaoh. And then Israel was commanded every year to keep Independence Day, Passover, And every year they kept Passover, Israel remembered being delivered from the tyrant, and they also hearkened forward to being delivered from new tyrants that would arise throughout Israel's history. As a matter of fact, Exodus and the Passover Passover holiday actually looked forward ultimately, because of what the prophet said, to a final Exodus, a big final deliverance, that God would do for Israel and, and ultimately when, when he returned and all of this. But as Israel was living out her national life, new tyrants appeared on the scene all the times. Just like in your lifetime in America, you've watched tyrants appear all over the world and it seems like America becomes the policeman of the whole world to go deal with all the tyrants everywhere. Is they like whack-a-mole. You hit one and another one pops up somewhere else is what it looks like in a lifetime as long as mine. And so as Israel's thinking about Passover, they're thinking, okay, this is a liberation from the tyrant. And in the first century, the days of Jesus, the tyrant on hand, the tyrant of the day, was Rome. It was Caesar. And the irony is that while the Israelites were devout in celebrating Independence Day, Exodus, Passover, They really didn't want a new exodus, especially the leaders did not want anything that would destabilize the status quo. Let me see if I can explain this statement. The ruling class of the Israelites had a great scheme in place. The ruling class were getting rich. Does this sound familiar to anybody? While the poor people were staying poor, 
the uber-rich were getting more uber-rich, and they had set up the system where they continued to get rich, while the other people continued to be strapped with, 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 with rules and regulations and laws and, and taxation. And so the ruling elite were allowed to exert their own brand of rule. They were given the right by Rome to rule their own people as long as they did two things. Kept the peace and kept the taxes coming into Rome. As long as they kept the taxes flowing and kept every, a riot from breaking out, keep the people calm, no uprisings, so we don't have to send soldiers. It costs money to send soldiers. It costs money to buy bullets. It, it costs money to feed soldiers. We don't want to have to invade with, with a fresh army. Keep the peace. Pay the taxes. And you Israelites can, can do your own form of, of self-rule. Well, those people who were in charge of that were getting rich and they said, do not rock the boat. Sure, we're subservient to Rome, but we've acclimated to that now. It's a very Judges, Book of Judges kind of attitude. Yeah, we're under the rule of the Philistines, but yeah, we've acclimated to that now. Yeah, we're under the rule of the Midianites, but we've, we've acclimated to that right now. And, and Jesus shows up, and Jesus is messing everything up for everybody. When Jesus shows up, He begins to stir up the masses and shake up the status quo. You see, there's talk in all the villages that this prophet from Nazareth is actually the Messiah. And that makes Jesus the potential king. Not just any king, but the king of the Jews. And the Jews already have a king. His name is Caesar. And Caesar does not tolerate rivals. And on the coins they've been stamping with Caesar's image on them, it talks about him being the Son of God. That's how they addressed Caesar. He's the Son of God. He was deified. Well, the Caesar, the Roman Son of God, will not accept any rival Son of God. Does anybody see a conflict coming here? We have the Son of God about to butt heads with the pseudo-Son of God. We have the Kingdom of Heaven about to come up against the kingdoms of this earth. And now the Jews are gathering, getting ready for Passover. They're starting to flood into the city of Jerusalem. They're going to be talking, doing stories in homes about the Exodus. They're going to be telling stories about liberation. They're going to be telling stories about Judas Maccabeus, Judas the Hammer, and how he delivered Israel. They're going to be telling stories about Moses uh, crushing Pharaoh. And they're going to be telling stories about deliverance. And people know their lines and they know the stories. The problem is when all these people come together and start talking about Independence Day, that makes Rome really nervous. This is like, very easily could turn into a political uprising. The masses are like dry kindling. The atmosphere is charged with electricity in Jerusalem. Just one spark could send this whole thing up into a Middle East war, a revolution against Rome. And one spark could ignite the whole thing. Well, rather than celebrate Passover in a low-key fashion, as Jesus had already done for 32 years, Jesus did something that He had never done up to this point. Jesus instigated a parade. Jesus orchestrated a bit of street theater with his disciples and the people who were coming up for Passover. He did it all very intentionally. Let me describe the street theater. 
he commanded his disciples to get a donkey. And his disciples were going to line the street, flowing down from the Mount of Olives over the brook Kidron and up into the eastern gate of Jerusalem, right where the temple is. Let me read it to you, Matthew 21, verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees, and they spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed him in the parade were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The people seem to know their speaking part here. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. And they're asking, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus. He's a prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So, in your mind, I want you to paint the picture, okay? Jesus is on the donkey. The people have palm branches. They're throwing them in the street. They're throwing down their cloaks. Everybody breaks out shouting and cheering. And as he rides in this hero's victory procession up into the city of Jerusalem, the people immediately recognized the drama that Jesus had staged. When they saw the scene, all of the people who knew the history of Israel said, Ha! Ah, we know this play. Ha! Ah, we know this play. This is a play about a new exodus. This is the new exodus scene that the prophet Zechariah wrote about. This is the big ending of the story. This is the new exodus where God sends a king to fix the mess the world's in. We know this play. And all the people quickly got palm branches and clothes and, and they said, we, we, we've got speaking lines here. We've got a part to play in the drama. And, and let me read it to you from Zechariah. Here's how they knew the play. I'm reading the Old Testament now. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The people are like, we know the play. Your king is coming. Come on, Jerusalem. Here is righteousness. Here is victory. Now, Jesus has never done anything so theatrical and so dramatic, especially in the city of Jerusalem and especially in the lead up to Passover, this giant, giant holy festival. The Pharisees are pouring out of the city now and they see the people and the street drama and the reenactment. And the, and the Pharisees start screaming at Jesus. It's recorded in the Scripture. Tell your disciples to stop this right now. Oh, they got the message of the street drama too. They understand what it's about. Tell your disciples to stop the play. Do not do this reenactment. Tell them to be quiet. They cannot shout, Hosanna. Tell them to stop. And Jesus looks at the Pharisees and He says, If I tell them to be quiet, the stones will cry out, Hosanna. This, <clears throat> let me say it to you, Wade. If, you, if Jesus had done this in modern history, here's what He'd be saying to you. Oh, this is happening. Stop it. Oh, we're not going to stop it. You can't stop it. This is happening, and it's happening right now, today. And the crowd has realized the play. They know their part in the play. 
and the crowd rushes together and they say, we know our speaking lines. Hosanna, blessed is He, rejoice Jerusalem. And they all broke out singing Psalm 118 because it's part of the play. Let me read you part of Psalm 118 that everybody... See, this is why I say, when somebody says to you, Christ is risen, you got to know your speaking part. And when Jesus gets on a donkey and starts riding into Jerusalem and people start shouting Hosanna, everybody instantly knew their speaking part. And they all together turned to the songbook of the Old Testament and they all began to sing Psalm 118. I'm reading a portion right now. Open for me the gates of righteousness, and I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks, for you have answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the most important stone in the building, the very cornerstone. The Lord has done this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us! That's what Hosanna means. Save us now. Lord, save us! Lord, grant us success! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. They're standing right at the gate of the temple. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God. And He has made His light to shine upon us. With bowels in hand, they're waving the palm branches. Join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God. And I will praise you. You are my God. And I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord. For He is good. For His love endures forever. Beautiful song they're singing. And with Jesus riding on the donkey, it sounds like they're saying the King is here and He is our God and He's coming into the gates. And that's exactly what's happening. Now let me move very quickly. The street drama that Jesus reenacted was the culmination of the message He had been preaching to Israel for almost three years now. I want to be sure you understand the message that Jesus has been preaching. Jesus proclaimed a kingdom message. Jesus was very consistent in the message He was speaking. And the message Jesus was speaking is this. The kingdom of heaven is here. Not one day the Lord will come and the, Jesus says, stop that. The kingdom of heaven is here. It is time right now in history for the kingdom of heaven to break out. Yes, the kingdom of heaven is about to confront the kingdoms of this world and I am going to reestablish the rule of heaven on earth. Now when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, that's not a rehash of Plato. This is what I want to be sure we're all clear on. Jesus is not talking about shedding His body and flying away in spirit form to sit on a mystical throne in heaven as a spirit. Jesus is talking about God's kingdom coming on earth. The kingdom of heaven is here. Because the king is here. And I am re-implementing the rule of heaven on earth. Now, 
I hear Christians telling an alternate story. I, I want to be sure you're clear on what Jesus was saying. So I'm going to go to the book of Matthew, and I'm going to take two minutes to show you something maybe you've never seen before. Here is the message of Jesus. Matthew 3, 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Matthew 4, 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is... Matthew 5.10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is... Matthew 10.7, as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Matthew 13.24, the kingdom of heaven is like a man sowing seed. Matthew 13.31, the kingdom of heaven is like mustard seed. Matthew 13.33, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast. Matthew 13.44, the kingdom of heaven... Is like a treasure hidden in a field. Matthew 13, 45, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. Matthew 13, 47, the kingdom of heaven is like a net. Matthew 16, 19, the keys of the kingdom of heaven are given to you. Matthew 18, 3, unless you become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18, 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Matthew 19, 14, Jesus said, little children, come to me, do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Matthew 20, verse 1, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. Matthew 22, verse 2, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Does anybody know what Jesus preached about? The kingdom of heaven is here. That's his message. It's incontrovertible. 32 times in the book of Matthew, he lays it out. Hey, Jesus, would you like to say something? Well, I'm glad you asked. The kingdom of heaven is... At another occasion, Jesus, why don't you say a few words? I'd be glad to. The kingdom of heaven is like... That's his message. He's very consistent in his message. He's been speaking about a kingdom, heaven's rule, reinstalled on earth. And after speaking about a kingdom for about three years now, publicly, now he has instigated a drama in the streets of Jerusalem, and he has acted like a king, and he has gotten on the donkey, and he has ridden up into the city, and the people knew the play, so they began to shout and sing and worship and talk about the king coming into Jerusalem. Which makes me ask you this, which kingdom do we want? This is really where we're going to have to ask ourselves some questions now as I wind this down. You see, another procession is entering through the western gate of Jerusalem. The Roman governor that represented the power of the kingdoms of this world... Caesar's representative in the Middle East lived at Caesarea by the sea. It's a Roman seaport fortress. And on special holidays like this, not wanting the people to explode in a revolution, he would make a show of force and he would ride in full military regalia with all of his garrison in the Middle East up to Jerusalem on the holy days to make a show of force so the people would not get out of control. It's a perfect setting for a rebellion. 
And so while Jesus is riding through the eastern gate, many believe it was all timed perfectly because another procession is now coming through the western gate. And through the western gate comes Pontius Pilate and the Roman army on a military horse, not a donkey, not lowly, not with tear-stained cheeks, with head held high, with biceps flexed, with cadence of footsteps on cobblestones, they march into the city. The question I have for you this morning is this, which is the reality and which is the parody? Here are two kingdoms, which is the real one? The tear-stained guy on the donkey or the the regal-looking guy in robes and surrounded by military might? This is the decision that's put before the world. Which kingdom do you want to live in? You want to live in this guy's kingdom or you want to live in this guy's kingdom? You want to live in a world where everybody does whatever they want to do by force? You just invade whatever country you want and take it. If your army's big enough, you can do it. If you're bad enough, help yourself. For 6,000 years of our history, that's what it looks like. You want something? Take it. If you're bad enough. Jesus even said, the kingdoms of this world are taken by military might. I've come to reinstall the rule of heaven on earth, and that kingdom is here. As Jesus rides up through the eastern gate on the donkey, the scripture tells us that he's weeping. While the people are shouting and cheering and singing Psalm 118, hot tears are pouring down his cheeks, staining the front of his robe. He's sobbing so heavily he can hardly get the words out, but he begins to speak. If only you'd known... If only you'd known things that make for peace, but you've closed your eyes. I tried to tell you, but you wouldn't listen. And now it's too late. They're coming. The monsters are coming. The brutes, the beasts are coming. And they're going to do what kingdoms always do. They're going to trample everything in their path. There will be no stones left standing when they're done. If you'd only known that this wasn't street theater, it was real. If you had only known the day of your visitation, You've been wanting God to come. He did. But you didn't understand the play. You were looking for the wrong sort of king. The world always does. You wanted war with Rome. But I came offering you a way to peace. If you had only known. You see, nobody imagined that when God came back, As the prophet said he would, no one imagined he would look like a young man from Galilee riding a donkey with tears pouring down his face. But our story this morning is not a sad one. 
Our story has the happiest of all endings. Because Christianity did not invent the resurrection. The resurrection created Christianity. And that's what we're celebrating today, that by His death and by His resurrection, Jesus has indeed launched the kingdom of heaven. Let me say it to you in different language. Sometimes it's hard for us to get. God is in control now, and He's bringing all things to a historical climax. God is in control. How do you know? Because when He rose again, He went to heaven and He sat down on the throne. That's how we know. And by faith in Jesus, we, you and I, have become living temples who are once again image bearers of a holy God. We have a divine vocation to live for God and to be custodians of planet earth. And even while we wait for our new bodies and a renewed earth, Jesus is already this morning on the throne of the universe. When Jesus was crucified, something happened. And the result of that happening was that the powers that locked up this world in decay and death have now been overthrown. From now on, Jesus is running the show. God's kingdom, the Bible calls it the kingdom of heaven, has been launched. You say, well, where is it? It's already been implemented in the lives of everyone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is within you right now if you choose Jesus as your king. You may be saying, I want to be a part of this kingdom. Well, you can't be a part of the kingdom and reject the king. That's the big story here. And if you want to be a part of God's kingdom called the kingdom of heaven, then you've got to receive the king. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I want to lead you to a moment of decision this morning. For those of you about to be baptized, I want you to slip out very quickly. Everyone else in the stillness, just focus on the decision you need to make. Ladies and gentlemen, you and I will never bring a sacrificial lamb to an altar. That's not part of our worship these days. And the reason those sacrifices are no longer a part of our worship is because the ultimate price has already been paid. It is not necessary that any more blood be shed. No more blood needs to be spilled. When Jesus died on the cross, He cried out, It is finished. It's all paid for now. And the reason the cross means what it means is because three days later, He rose from the grave to show you had power over sin and death. He is a conquering King. But He didn't conquer the way the world thought. He conquered through His death and His resurrection. And that has made it possible for you this morning to have your sins forgiven, to be restored back into a relationship with God, and to be a part of God's kingdom. I want to ask you a very personal question in this stillness. Is He your King? Is He the one calling the shots? That's what king means. It's what Lord means. If you feel the weight of your sin this morning, I'm going to ask you to call upon Jesus Christ right now and ask Him to forgive you of your sins. 
to wash you, to cleanse you. I'm going to give you an opportunity to receive him as your king right now. And become a new creature in Christ, a new creation in Christ. Be a part of the family of God. By a simple putting your faith in Jesus Christ transaction. If you've never done that before, I want you to do it right now. I'm going to lead you. My words won't save you. It's not like some magic spell or anything, but it's just a, I'm facilitating a conversation between you and God. You just take my words now and make them your own. Pray like this. Dear Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you are exactly who the Bible has described you. The exact representation of God. I believe you came to this earth and gave your life on the cross. I believe you were buried and rose again. I believe you are the King. Jesus, I want to acknowledge before you that I'm a sinner. I know you know that already. But I feel like I should confess that from my own heart today. I am a sinner. And I can't do anything to save myself. I have no righteousness. I need you. I need your righteousness. I need your forgiveness. So Jesus, this is my prayer to you. Please forgive me of my sins. Past, present, future. Wash me and cleanse me. I accept you as my Lord and my Savior. I accept you as the King of my life. From now on, you're 100% in charge. I pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit now to live inside my heart and in my life. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for saving me on this Easter Sunday. In Jesus' name I pray. 